Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I'm your host, Sourdough, and man, do we have a great show for you today. Today, we are going to meet the legendary gallerist, Mary Karnowski of KP Projects here in Los Angeles. Mary is a groundbreaking gallerist and curator whose work has helped legitimize the careers of artists such as Greg Crayola Simpkins, Shepard Ferry, Todd Shore, Camille Rose Garcia, Kent Williams, Tara McPherson, Jeff Soto. I could go on and on and on, but I'm so grateful to have Mary on the show because guess what, guys? This is her 25th anniversary. She's been doing this since 1997 and starting August 6th through the 27th here in Los Angeles, she is hosting her 25th anniversary exhibition at her gallery, KP Projects at 633 North La Brea Avenue here in Los Angeles. And I'll tell you what, I was so, I was so grateful to have her on the show today and hear her story. I mean, we totally hit it off because of course, you know, she, like me, we, we just love artists and art and we're just trying to help. Right. But she's managed to really help legitimize these artists and their careers, many of whom have transitioned to being in museums and and having, uh, you know, even bigger and bigger shows over the years. And so I really want you to tune into this one and 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 listen to what Mary's story is, because it's so inspiring. But before we get into it, I want to shout out to our friends at Hijinks PR for making this happen. Hijinks brought Mary and I together to talk about her 25 years journey as a art lover, gallerist and curator. And so major shout out to High Jinx for uh, making this happen. And so I, without further ado, let's get into this because Mary is just a delight. And I know you're going to love hearing from her and hearing her story because, you know, without her and her hard work over 25 years, we may not really know the work of artists that we love, such as Shepard Ferry and Greg Simpkins and Todd Carpenter and Kent Williams and on and on and on. So here we go, people. Let's hear from the one and only Mary Karnowski. Mary Karnowski, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, I'm so stoked that you came on the show. We have so much to talk about. 
And, you know, one of the things that I was excited about having you on the show for, and there were many reasons, but as you might guess, with a name like Not Real Art, you know, I feel like maybe we share a lot of the same values. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Right? Because when you started your gallery, uh, KP Projects, of course, it was, uh, I think it was called something else back 25 years ago, but, but we can get into that. But basically, you have been curating and producing shows. You've been a gallerist for 25 years. And you know, you followed your passion, you followed your love, you found an aesthetic, you found an art form, you found artists that spoke to you. And you said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna advocate for these artists, I'm gonna champion these artists, I don't care what the rest of the art world thinks. (laughs) Right. And you followed your heart, you followed your passion. And, and here you are 25 years later, all the blood, sweat and tears and, and, you know, and the rest of the world caught up to you, right? I mean, now you're, you're a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I thank you. (laughs) Now you're an innovator. Now you've gotten that, that cred that maybe 25 years ago was, was hard to come by. So let's go back 25 years. And I want to hear from you about how you were feeling at that time. Were you feeling sort of, was it, were you scared that you were breaking into this or you were you just so confident that, you know what, this is such a powerful, these artists are so powerful. I believe in them so much that, you know, I know this is going to work. Or was it some mix of the two? Take us back 25 years and, and help us understand sort of where your head was and how you were feeling back in those days. Well, I, I do think that you're correct and that it was a mix of a lot of emotions. You know, I think there, I think any big decision about branching out on your own is a mixed bag and it's a calculated risk. So at the time it it was really scary. I mean, I had some experience working in other galleries. I had, you know, had a lot of time with artists in college where I got to know maybe the formal way that artists try to get representation. And from that point of view, I feel like I'm really grateful because I got to see, you know, what artists went through, not just the business side of things. So I, I feel I was well balanced moving into this. But, you know, opening your space takes money and you have to plan. And at that time, there weren't a lot of galleries showing the type of work that I wanted to show, but I had some experience working with some great artists. So I think it became just a necessity because I wasn't finding this type of work represented in a way that I thought it should be. And there were many great, you know, there were a few great galleries in Los Angeles that were showing the work and in really cool, like underground settings that were, it's like, was great. It was a fun party. It was great, you know, for the community and people just kind of hanging out and getting to know each other. But I felt to some degree it was distracting from the importance of the art itself. So when I opened a gallery, you know, it was a small space, second floor, Art 170 building on La Brea. And I was fortunate that the woman who had the building as the gallery, like she held the, the lease for the building, her name was Jan Baum. And she had a very successful gallery that she started in her 40s. I spoke to her about renting this small upstairs space. And I'm like, you know, I've, I've thought this through to, you know, have a certain amount of money to be able to go a certain amount of time. It makes me nervous. It, it's great to talk to you as an experienced gallerist, especially a woman. And she was so kind. And she goes, you know, we'll make it work. And Mary, you have to try because you have these ideas. You want to champion this art. And we need people like you to do that. 
So she was very supportive and very encouraging. And I think, you know, 25 years later, I find that very rare. <laughs> so I'm deeply appreciative of it. So I did move in and I was fortunate to have my first show with two artists that I am still working with today. So we have a 25 year long relationship. And that was Todd Shore and his wife, Kathy Stako Shore. And he, you know, had pretty much started showing maybe five to six years earlier and had built a successful career. But he was also an illustrator in New York before that and also had a lot of success doing book covers, a lot of album covers. So I felt confident in that I knew at least that first show should go pretty well to, to set my foundation. And then from there, it was an exploration because there were artists that I saw around town that I really wanted to approach. So it was kind of talking to an artist to see if they knew the artists. And from there, I also did know an artist, Kent Williams, who I had met at Comic-Con. I met a lot of great artists, especially back in the day at Comic-Con. And he was an illustrator and also a fine painter. So we started talking about ex exhibiting together. So it kind of snowballed. But yeah, it's... I think for anyone starting out on their own and trying to create a business based on things that you believe is tough, but it's absolutely necessary. Well, you know, that's a key point you're making, right? Because, you know, whether you love your product or not, and I don't mean to be so reductive, but if you're an entrepreneur and you're going into business, whether you love your business or not, whether you love your product or service or not, it's a high wire act, right? I mean, 90% of businesses fail, period, no matter what, right? And let alone getting into the art business oh, yeah, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> from scratch. <laughs> so you're like, okay, how can I make this high risk endeavor even riskier? Right, right? exactly. It's like sell art to make yeah, a living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and the point I'm trying to get to is this idea that, of course, you better love it. You better believe in it because at the end of the day, that that integrity, that passion is going to shine through and people are attracted to attract, you know, to to the laws of attraction. Right. I mean, in terms of of having that energy and that passion, people are going to be drawn to that and they're going to see that you believe in this and and that's going to translate and hopefully mitigate some of that risk along the way. Right. Yeah, that is the hope. And thank goodness it worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it has worked in a big way. You know, you I want to go back to something you said, because it's really interesting, because you said, you know, you were on the scene and you noticed that, you know, the you know, lowbrow or pop surrealism or what, whatever kind of, you know, aesthetic we want to refer to. But, you know, 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, you're on the scene and you're doing these underground, you're going to underground parties or events or what have you. And you were saying that the scene sort of overshadowed the art and you saw this opportunity to sort of carve that out, right? And say, no, 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 let me, let me take the art, put it in a, in a gallery so that it really gets the spotlight, you know, that it deserves. And, you know, and that's one of the things that strikes me about the, the lowbrow movement, so to speak, perhaps relative to other art genres. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but, you know, when it comes to lowbrow there, you know, in my, in my experience, right, it, it, there's a, it's a culture, right? It's not just an art form, right? There's a, there's a world around it. There's a, a a culture around it, and so yes, you know there there are parties and events. You know there's a, there's music attached to it. There's fashion attached to it. There's a lifestyle kind of attached to it. So I can see that you know it's interesting how you were like, wait a minute, you know the art is there, but it's sort of overshadowed by all this other stuff, which is 
obviously core to the scene, core to the culture. And, 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 and but yet that's also one of the things that makes it such an exciting, you know, art genre, right? That, that world, that culture that you get to go into as you discover these artists, cause you realize, Oh wait, they, you know, there's a certain kind of music, there's a certain, you know, fashion sense. There's a, you know, uh, Oh wait, there's a magazine juxtaposed. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. No, absolutely. And I think you put it, you know, really nicely. That is so important to this scene. And it's something that I celebrate and I love because it, it just kind of infuses the energy but the problem at the time was that serious art critics weren't paying attention because they weren't taking the art itself seriously. It was too much, like you were saying. It was like overshadowed by sort of the culture and the other elements. And so at least initially, I really wanted to take away all the distraction so someone could have pure engagement and assess it on its own merits. Because all of the other stuff is great and it's important to why the work exists and why it's popular and why so many people, you know, connect to it. But there is this fundamental part of it, which is craft and, you know, this use of, of storytelling and metaphor and symbols and high, high, high craft. You know, that maybe even that at the time wasn't really appreciated as, you know, people are looking at other art forms of like, you know, abstraction and things like that. So painting was kind of fighting for its life at that time anyway. And this type of painting, especially because it did incorporate culture like tattoos and hot rods and comic books and, you know, drawing. So it had a lot against it. <laughs> and I just wanted to kind of clear that away while still having a great party and a great opening, because I believe in that, to celebrate the artists themselves, but so that people could come in and engage and really make, you know, a pure assessment. Mary, obviously your relationship with Todd has been pivotal. I mean, he was your first artist, you know, 25 years ago. You continue to work with him uh, over all these years. He's going to be in the anniversary exhibition. I mean, talk about your relationship with Todd. I mean, what a pivotal relationship that's been for you. I mean, when I think about it, and especially being the 25th anniversary, Todd Shore has been such an incredible, consistent, talented partner in so many ways because he was my first exhibition when I opened the gallery and he, you know, believed in me enough to sort of be my longest lasting artist in my stable. So both he and his wife, Kathy Shore, are extremely talented. I mean, Todd has been one of those artists that crossed over in so many ways from, you know, illustration to only committing to fine art painting. And I think during that time of transition, that was a really hard decision for him to make because he, you know, when you are a successful commercial illustrator, it's, you know, it's very lucrative. And when he made that decision to become a painter and solely a painter, you know, he took a, a big risk and he trusted in me to help his career, you know, for the next 25 years. So I really owe a lot to him and Kathy. And it's really wonderful because of that, he is one of the artists that have crossed over into having a, a successful museum career as well. So he had his first mid-career retrospective at the San Jose Museum in 2009, and also had an amazing 
exhibition at Mocha Virginia Beach in 2018, which then traveled to the Crocker Museum in 2020. But that was during COVID. So there's this beautiful museum exhibition that no one got to see in person. So I just really wanted to speak about Todd and our journey together over the span of my entire career. And it's exciting because he's having a solo exhibition in November of this year. So everyone should look forward to that. And that's going to be at KP Projects. Yeah, at KP Projects in November of 2022. Oh, be there, people. Be there. Yeah. I mean, if you had to guess, I mean, my God, so I don't know how many shows you've had over 25 years, but, you know, if you if, if just on a percentage basis, you know, if you had to guess, I mean, how many shows do you think Todd's been in of yours? Like 10%, 20%, 30%? Well, Todd does these huge, like, masterwork paintings that take years. Yes, right. <laughs> so Todd has, you know, creates these amazing masterwork, intricate paintings, a lot of times large in scale that take, you know, a year to do. Right, so right. Todd has shows with me every four to six years. There so you over go. 25 there you years. Go. A- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're really special and worth worth coming out to see. The last thing you want to do is is rush anyone with their art and with with masterpieces like that. But you know, the gift of time is the ingredient that you it's a, it's a must Exactly. Have exactly. Exactly. For sure. And you know, you you talk about some of these artists in sort of their maybe their trajectory or their journey. You know, you mentioned Todd in terms of him coming from New York as an illustrator, that kind of thing, maybe maybe more of a commercial art background. And it strikes me that so many so-called lowbrow artists or new contemporary artists or, you know, pop surrealist artists, many of them don't have a conventional journey, right? And maybe that's, I wondered, you, you maybe I'd love for you to speak to this. I mean, is that, was that, looking back, do you think that was part of the reason why the you know, so-called blue chip art world or first world of art maybe didn't embrace them because they didn't have MS, MFAs or they had not followed a more traditional path? I do think that's part of it. I think there's a real hierarchy and there's this very traditional path that artists have taken traditionally. And, you know, like I was saying, I, I went to school at the Claremont Colleges, so I had a chance to, to hang out with a lot of MFA students then, you know, that were getting their graduate degrees. And so you could see that, yes, they were following this protocol and it was anxiety inducing because it's like, where did you get your MFA? Who were your professors? Can you explain fully your practice in these, you know, very academic terms? And I was really interested in artists who had maybe visual language, but not necessarily the critical voice to support it. And so that was important to me. And talking to artists that, you know, for me, initially, when, when you are starting out, the stakes aren't quite as high, you know, if it doesn't work out, you go do something else. You know, for me, this is what I wanted to do. And it was just important for me to represent artists that I really liked and would buy. And, you know, felt that there would be others that really didn't know 100%. And so every show that was successful became just further encouragement for me. And then other people started to show the work or some had already been showing it. And it became this, this sort of group, like, you know, from the time I started for the first at least 10 or 15 years, there was this movement, like it was like the zeitgeist spirit of the time, 
people coming together. I don't think we even knew it at the time. It felt like this sort of golden age. We were all growing up together. We're all pursuing things in this kind of DIY mentality. And it really was a special, special time. So I feel fortunate because I don't think a lot of people and even friends that are in the art world maybe haven't experienced it. You know, there are different times when certain artists do really well or, you know, thank goodness people have these great art careers. But this was pretty amazing <laughs> with, with pop surrealism and lowbrow and street art all coming together. And I kind of mixed things up. You know, I wasn't on a formal, you know, a lot of the work is, was pop surrealism and lowbrow, but I also showed, you know, street art like Shepard Fairey and Dalek and, you know, at the time Richard Coleman and other artists who were dabbling in other areas. And then even later, you know, in the last 10 years, I started to work with just a couple of photographers, like Vivian Myers, a street photographer. And I think that was unusual for the artwork, too, because I, I mixed mediums and I mixed genres. How dare you I get know. out of your lane to stay in your lane? <laughs> exactly. And I, because I really do love so much work. And I guess I, thank goodness, didn't ever, like, buy into the idea that it could only be done one way. And a lot of the artists that I was working with that I related to weren't doing it one way. They were just doing it. Well, isn't that an interesting contradiction, right? Because turns out the art world is terribly conservative. Mm, <laughs> you yes. know, I mean, here you have artists, we celebrate artists, but you know, for being innovators and, and seers and complete rule breakers. And yet the art world doesn't serve 99% of them because the art world is so damn conservative. It's got one business model and damn it, you better fit that business model. Otherwise, you know, yeah, we can't help you. And I've just always found that to be so interesting. So ironic that, Turns out what the art world needs more than anything is a is a straight shot of innovation, man. We need more business models to serve more artists. Yeah, exactly. And more people to shoot from the hip and like to make decisions Express with themselves. their guts. Yes, right. Yeah. And and it's hard in business though, because there are, you know, bills to pay and rent to pay yes, and yes. you know, lots of things that come into play. And if you really are making a living from selling art, that's difficult to do. So Well, and that is a sort of the ultimate conundrum, right, for an artist in terms of, okay, so if an artist, we won't mention names, but you know, if they build their career, build their business, so to speak, you know, around a certain aesthetic, so to speak, you know, collectors want to buy that. And then, you know, maybe a few years in, artists feel a little pigeonholed. It's like, wait a minute, I want to reinvent myself. I want to try a new avenue, but maybe the the collect you know the the so called uh, collector base uh, you know is is scared of that change, or the artist feels a little a little trapped. You know, I mean that is true, and I really empathize with that because I'm sure it's incredibly difficult. And you know, my job sometimes is having those conversations with artists, which isn't easy. And I don't dictate; I really do support. But I do think that a realistic conversation is to talk to an artist about how slow progression is really important because an artist is creating in their studio. And so it's very isolating and they can't see these longer transitions that kind of have to happen over time. You know, you feel like I've done this, it's redundant. I want to break out, but only 1% of the world has seen it. If that, you know, probably not even that or the art world, let's say. And so it takes people a lot of time, even now with technology and everything to catch up. 
to see the work and collectors need to see consistency so that they can trust the projection and really what the artist's work is over time. So to make really bold, rash moves, either in medium that are too jarring is difficult because then I think collectors might interpret it as the artist, you know, not being able to represent themselves in a way that's lasting. And that may not be fair. It largely isn't. But in terms of art collecting, people are creating work or collecting work, like to maintain a collection over time that has you know, either personal lasting value, some financial lasting value, but something that can be identifiable to the artist. So when you see it, it's like, oh yeah, that's a so-and-so and and that's a so-and-so that becomes a more universal language and identifier. And, And that sometimes I think artists maybe have a hard time thinking through and I'm a, I'm a super long-term person. The artists that I work with, I hope to work with for a really long time. I'm slow, progressive, you know, champion. So those kinds of things like consistency and longevity are really important, you know, long-term. For sure. Well, my, my God, so, you know, think no further than Todd Shore, 25 years. Yeah, <laughs> of, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So do you remember, I mean, it sounds like your first show with Todd was, was actually you know, successful. I mean, it probably sounds like it, I don't know if it exceeded your expectations, but it sounds like you were reasonably pleased with, with that first show. But can you think back, was there a moment where you felt like, okay, we've cleared the the hurdle here where we're on our way. Was there one show in particular that, that you, that stands out in your memory where you realized, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to be okay. We're on to something. Or was it, was it more uneven than that? Was it that first show? You say, okay, yep. Nope. Got it right. Take us back. And I'd love to hear those stories of the, of, of that big milestone in your journey where you felt like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to be okay, but we're on to something. Well, I think that the early years were always difficult. You know, there was just so much going on. And, you know, I felt confident because, you know, at a certain point, your overhead is a certain amount. You're basically doing everything yourself. (laughs) I mean, a lot of galleries start out this way or you have one part-time person. And so everything was maintained at a certain level that, you know, was manageable and could grow. And I do think that some of the shows happened probably five or six years later. So we kind of stuck with it for five or six years. And then there were artists like, you know, Shepard I showed for the first time in 2000. And we worked together for like nine, almost 10 years. And there really was something with his trajectory because, you know, from the time I showed him, and we will joke because I'll talk to Shepard sometimes. He's like, yeah, I don't think we sold very much in that first show. And it was with wrong English. He's super humble. He's like a really, I mean, it's fun to talk to him because he's too super straightforward. It's yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but then the next year and the next year. And I do think like around 2005, you know, I had shows with Shepard and Camille. And Camille, I started showing, I think, in like 2002, maybe. So it took a few years to build up. And she was an artist whose work I love. She had sent me slides of her work. So we had this, you know, back and forth. It wasn't even by the way, I, I, By the way, I just want to stop you. Slides, people. Slides. <laughs> exactly. With a nice cover letter, you know. Yeah. She had been to graduate school and her work was so amazing. I'm like, oh, my God. It was like thrilling. And, you know, so we contacted each other. I did a studio visit. 
And her first show sold out completely. And that was an indicator that I was onto something and that she was something really special. And then I showed, you know, Shepard and then one of his major first big shows did really well. And then you kind of build, build Todd Shore as well. He had some really great collectors and his work is just so phenomenal that I'd have really successful sold out shows of his moving in, you know, to, to a couple of years later. So that really helps us kind of sustain and maintain things. And then I think a really big moment too. So, and that was consistent. There was just this golden era where everything was selling out. It was pretty crazy. And it was for other galleries as well. It wasn't just me. It's like there, again, it's like the spirit of the time, the zeitgeist was working. And I think another really big moment was in 2008, I believe. One of my last shows was Shepard. I had a big space downstairs then. I'd moved up downstairs, one of the major spaces. Jan Baum had moved out. She had retired. And I took the whole, I blew out a wall and took out the whole first floor of this building, which was like 10,000 square feet. And we hosted a show for Shepard called Imperfect Union. And I think there were around, I think there were almost 200 pieces in that show. And we started to talk about the opening. We had to hire security. There were people trying to climb over our back fence to get into the opening. Literally, I had a security guy like shadowing <laughs> Shepherd. It was just amazing <laughs> and just totally bizarre. Were those the groupies? And, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, it's like it's an art opening. You can come after the opening. It was just so there's just like this rabid fan base and like lines around the block. And, and then Shepherd DJed after. And by the end of that show, we had sold 199 pieces. <laughs> and the one piece that didn't sold, I bought. You right, know? And it was right, just a right. small album. I'm like, this one I have to have. This one's been waiting for me. This is you symbolic. Know? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was yes. symbolic. I have it to this day. And that was great. And he, you know, he totally, the thing is, is that Shepard was doing really, really well like building up in those years before, but people, people who knew, knew, but not everybody, you know, and I don't think he was getting the critical acclaim that he deserved. People are still fighting his vision. And then he did, you know, the Obama poster, then he did an, an ICA show in Boston, and then things started to really shift, but he had done really well before that. That's the thing. It's like galleries are always doing business and creating like a lot of movement on the ground with the people, but it takes a while for the museums to catch up for sure. And then Shepard, I mean, Camille Rose Garcia, also phenomenal, Todd Shore, and then so many other artists. Then I started to work with, you know, Crayola, Gray Crayola Simpkins. And then I started to work in the fast, past few years with Jenny Bird Alcantara, whose work is just gorgeous. And she has these incredible collectors. And then there's all the in-between. So I don't want to forget all the in-between right, of, of course, all the shows as you're building. So, yeah. So if I could survey all the artists that you've worked with over the years, certainly the ones that you've worked with consistently over the years, and we're going to get into the 25th anniversary exhibition in a few minutes. We'll talk about that because that's coming up. August 6th, people. Yeah, <laughs> August 6th through August 27th. Oh my gosh, yeah. Shout out. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> but if we could survey all the artists that 
that have come to love working with you and showing AKP projects so on and so forth. If I could survey them and ask them like what the one thing is they love about you and working with you, what do you think they would say? Huh, that's hard for me to say. What do I you would, hope? Let me let's put this What do you hope they would say? <laughs> I would hope that they would say that I was a gallerist that truly believed in them, that they felt that I truly believed in them and supported them and that it was about the art and them, you know, I would really want them to feel that for me because that has been my goal. And, you know, it's not always easy <laughs> to operate that way because there are those hard conversations sometimes. And, and sometimes you do see a direction and need to have discussions. I don't think I've had very many of those, but that's, I, I would like that to be my legacy. I would like people to really know that I was there for the art. So a lot has changed, right? I mean, over 25 years in the art game, as they say. I mean, we were sort of joking a minute ago about Camille, you know, showing you slides. But technology's driven so much of this change. Do you think, let's, let's I don't know, let's wax poetic here for a little bit and talk philosophy or what have you around just, you know, the the role of a gallery, you know, in an artist's life. You know, there are other options via technology now for artists to, you know, they don't, you know, a lot of artists out there, you know, sort of leapfrog over galleries or don't even try to work with galleries now because they can go straight to the to the buyer via the web or whatever the case might be. You know, do you think that the role of a, of a gallery such as KP Projects is essentially the same today as it was 25 years ago? Or do you think... And, and even just more broadly too, you know, galleries, do you think the the role of the gallery and artist live is essentially the same or, or has it changed? And if so, how has it changed? And what would you say the role of a gallery is today, you know, for an artist versus 30, even 40 years ago? I think the fundamental role of the gallery is still the same because I think that artists want their work to be seen and they want their work to be seen and presented a certain way. And that's why you choose one gallery or the other, one gallerist over the other, because you like the way that the gallerist conducts themselves and how the work is presented in a space and also how the work is presented to collectors. And, you know, being a gallery is limiting because we can only show so many artists and then different galleries choose different ways to do that. So, you know, in my career, I opened a gallery in Berlin for a couple of years because I wanted to, to give artists an opportunity there. I've done secondary spaces in Chinatown. I've done pop-ups while always maintaining my gallery. And I think for a long time, it's like more, 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 bigger, 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 more, more artists. And now I'm at a point where I like, love my space. I love how I can really nurture solo projects. And so my role has stayed the same and my goal to present people you know, not just in one show, but one possible, you know, build a relationship with them has stayed the same. But I do think what's changed mostly is the artist's viewpoint because there were more opportunities for them to reach collectors directly. And I think I've even had some artists who have tried and that's, you know, they've done a combination of both because it's more of a partnership now too. Like gallerists really appreciate artist promotion and I think that people like to engage with artists directly. So then there's just this conversation and this trust between how you navigate that so that collectors 
still purchase out of exhibition shows. There are certain amounts of time that you present the work. So that sort of changed, which used to be more traditionally locked in. But I, I really think that it's wonderful that artists have more sort of authority and ability to maneuver and present themselves. And I think some artists prefer not to because they really do appreciate and want an artist or a gallery to handle that for them because it becomes very stressful. The business part isn't something I want to deal with because there are lots of fun things like shipping mishaps and (laughs) (laughs) insurance claims and, you know, or just dealing, you know, there is this kind of nice level not to, to separate the artist from the collector, but there is this nice sort of, you know, separation that can be positively created so that there's not so much access that it becomes demanding, you know, that the collectors, you know, maybe feel that they can ask certain things of the artist that they don't want to be in the position to be asked, you know, because they want to keep it a little more professional. So I think it goes both ways. And I think it really depends on the artist and what you're looking for. But I I think there will always be a place for galleries. And it just depends on what your vision is for your career as to whether you show. Right. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, artists are not a monolithic community. I mean, everybody is so different and that's the nature of being an artist, right? That's what we want. We want everybody to be idiosyncratic and, and, and unique and, you know, but it is hard, right? If you're a gallerist to, shall we say, you know, for lack of a better way, putting standardized an approach or whatever, because you're trying to meet the needs of your artists and they're also unique, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but you it's funny, you mentioned the shipping. I've I've joked in the past, it's like, how can you be in the art selling game and not actually have to touch or move the art? Because that's that's the problem, right? It's like, my God, the handling of the art and the shipping of the art and the insurance, like that's the pain point right there. It completely is. It's really hard. Or, you know, just I mean, and likewise, collectors are very, you know, unique and they have their whole way of engaging and stuff. And it's all really great. I mean, I love both sides of it, but it is funny because I've had, you know, there was an occasion with an artist whose wife decided to open a small gallery and she was very communicative and we had great, you know, we worked well together because it was in a different part of the country and asked if she could show some of the artist's work in a group show, even though he showed with me. And I'm like, of course, yeah, there's no conflict as long as we communicate. And I think she had her gallery for like one and a half year and then said, I will never do this again. And I will (laughs) never not, you know, support galleries and how hard it is. Because when you're actually doing it, it's really, I mean, it's all looks, you know, you know, beautiful behind the velvet curtain. Here we are. So glamorous. Yeah. yeah, We're like camera nails, like doing stuff. And, you know, it's basically me and my associate director. And then we have some support, but we do a lot. And people always joke. It's like, oh my gosh, she actually climbs on the ladder, do the to do the lighting. I'm like, yes. And I hold the ladder and we move these things. It's like, we're, we're physically involved. You know, we, we work hard because we want to, you know, and because maybe a little controlling, you know, we want to control the environment, but yeah, we work hard. We move things. <laughs> well, this reminds me of a conversation I was having the other day with somebody. Cause they were asked, I, I guess I, we were at dinner and I had tipped the server in such a way that my friend had sort of said, wow, you know, it's a bit generous. I said, you know what? 
I said, I waited tables for one day. Yeah. <laughs> one day. <laughs> that's, that's all I took. It's all it took for me to go like, you know what? This isn't for me. I can't do this. This is really hard work. I'm not, I'm not good enough for this. And I have the utmost respect for waiters and servers and bartenders ever since. And I'm happy to tip generously because their work is hard. I agree with you. That is one job that I would have the most difficulty doing, just keeping everything straight and carrying things and and personalities. 100%. Well, it is. Yeah, it's funny. You know, the, the, the glamorous world of the art world, the glamour of the art world may, may not always be so glamorous. We got to roll up our sleeves and get to sweaty sometimes. And, you know, we, we sort of joked about the, the moving of the art and the shipping and the insuring of the art. Certainly over the last, well, I don't know, what, 15 years, if not 20 years, the explosion of art fairs, you know, has sort of put pressure on galleries in a whole new way to be at these art fairs. And so again, talk about that innovation, talk about the changing of the art world. Certainly this has been one and maybe COVID impacted some of that as well, you know, but, but how has KP projects and how have you managed the whole art fair game? And, and how do you think about that? I mean, do you feel pressure to be at these art fairs? Are you, you know, I'm guessing you're at, at, at a few of them, if not, you know, all of them, but, but what say you about what's happening with art fairs these days? I mean, I think historically there, there has been pressure. And I think the way that I've offset that in some cases, and I have done some over the years is that I really, I mean, it's hard for me to justify it when we're in Los Angeles, which is such an international city, which has so much going on. And I think they can be really good. I've also had to sort of balance my home life with doing things like art fairs because I have kids, you know, and I have responsibilities at home. So I've tried to choose the fairs that I do carefully. I think they're by and large a very big advertisement and I think work can be sold. But I just think it really is an incredible expense. So you have to be really sure that that's manageable and that it does, you know, work out for you financially. And I've done some of them and, you know, they've been fun. I don't have as much interest at the moment just because I really, I really want to be here. I really want to take care of my gallery. I really want to focus on my exhibitions. I feel pretty confident about that. And by the way, how lucky are we? That we're in Los Angeles. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> what an amazing, what an amazing city to be a part of. I mean, say nothing of the fact that we also happen to be by default in California, which, by the way, is like the best state to live in. Yeah. You know, at least in terms of natural beauty. We won't get into politics and, and taxes, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but here we are in the city of Angels, one of the most eclectic dynamic, beautiful, crazy, weird places to be. And, you know, and, and the art scene has exploded here in, over the last 20, 25 years, right? I mean, I feel like historically LA sort of maybe lived in the shadow of New York or London and and sort of fought for its place in the art world. But my God, it's, it's definitely carved out its place over the last 20 years, has it not? Absolutely. I mean, I think the culture... I mean, I think a lot, we were like the stepsister to New York for many years in terms of art, you know, but we live in a city that's the entertainment capital of the world. We also live in a city and a state that really is open to ideas. And I think it's one of the few places you could be when I think about opening my gallery anywhere else, there's no way I would have made it. I really don't believe it because there is sort of this openness and 
this generous exchange of ideas, which some people have said, oh, it's fake, it's this or that. It's like, no, you just need to find the right people. And there are, there are big populations where you can find your tribe, you can find your people and build something. And people tend to listen, you know, they'll listen to you, they might not agree with you, they might fund you, they might not do all of these things, but they won't shut you down for just presenting something interesting. And I think that's rare. I don't know that that exists in many other places where there's, you know, more of a traditional hierarchy to the way ideas are shared or, you know, things of that nature are kind of assimilated. So yeah, I love LA. I really appreciate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I hail from Chicago originally. I moved here in a one. And for, if you've ever met anybody from Chicago, you know how proud we are of our city and we can be quite dogmatic about it. And, you know, admittedly, when I moved to LA, I too had a bit of a chip on my so- shoulder, you know, about uh, LA and the stereotypes of LA because, you know, the Hollywood does cast a long shadow, right? I mean, it does, you know, I feel like the city suffers from, in, in, many ways in some ways the real city of la suffers sometimes from the shadow of the hollywood cast and you know it took me about a year or so to find my tribe once i moved here but boy i found them in in droves and you know that that old trope about oh you never meet anybody in la from la oh hell yes you do you meet them at the bank and you meet them at the dmv and you meet them at the grocery store and you meet them at the gas station because they're running the city (laughs) right (laughs) and it turns out la is one of the most diverse if not the most diverse city in the country, because, you know, you have such amazing, you know, immigrant communities here and it is just rich and dynamic and culturally. It is. It's so amazing. Did you ever see the documentary on Jonathan Gold, The Food Critic? Oh, no, I have not. I'm embarrassed to say I have heard of it and I have not seen it. You should see it because he, like he's a Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, food critic. Yes, yes. And this film is all about like living in Koreatown and eating, you know, the food, the local food and finding these amazing places. It made me fall in love with LA from a whole different point of view. And it was really, really great. And it, I think it really does epitomize some of the most wonderful things about Los Angeles. A hundred percent. We'll talk about another amazing city, which sadly I have not been to, but I've heard amazing things. Berlin. It sounds yeah. like you had about three years of living and working in Berlin. What what took you to Berlin? What do you know, t- take us back to Berlin? Well, interestingly enough, I was in Miami, probably. I think I did an art fair there and I was in, at some parties at, for Art Basel. And some friends of mine who were from Berlin were there and we were talking about how amazing Berlin was as a city for art and how affordable it was. So, you know, at these like parties where you're having cocktails and just talking. Let's move to Berlin. <laughs> I'm like, let's open a gallery. Yeah. What a great idea. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, I, I think one of them was in tech and stuff. And they're like, okay, we're looking for things. So I flew there and we had this meeting and we, you know, we had all these talks about how things would work and they wanted to take more of a piece of Los Angeles than I was willing to give. So I just like, then again, you know, I kind of dug my heels and it's like, I'll do it myself, you know? So I reached out some friends who were there to help me look for spaces. And I started to fly out and we found this amazing space, which was the oldest puppet theater in Berlin and an area called Mitte, which is a very, like a really great location. And so we started to talk with the landlord, but we had to find someone who was from Berlin to speak to them because, you know, they wanted 
someone from the area to actually negotiate. So, and I don't speak any German. So this was no small feat for me to do this. I just, I can't, in retrospect, I can't believe it, but it was so much fun. So they've renovated the space and I signed a lease and I had, you know, I had a friend there who was a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer. So they helped me with all the, you know, agreements and a very good friend who had helped work for me part-time in Los Angeles had been wanting to move to Berlin. So he moved there and became the director. I would fly there part-time. You know, I got pregnant with my second child. So that kind of curbed my ability to travel that much, but I would go and, you know, for shows and it was a really great experience. It was really hard because I realized that, you know, as open as Berlin is, it's still not quite open. Maybe it would take a long time for foreigners to kind of get established there. So we had some really great shows. I feel like there were great new collectors that were met but it just, it came down to one of these things that I was there kind of a sweet spot when I opened. And then of course, when my lease was out, the rent was like tripling. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't do this. It wasn't sustainable. So it was, I mean, it really was a great experience. And this city is vibrant and wonderful, brutal in the winters. <laughs> so another way of appreciating Los Angeles so much. And I'm really glad I did it. There was one friend in particular, we went out to dinner after I opened and he basically said, I just, I can't believe you did it. I can't believe you actually were able to do it. You know, not speaking German. Just, right. Oh yeah. yeah. What an adventure. I mean, were you, in terms of the programming, were you programming, you know, lowbrow pop surrealist artists? Like what, what, oh, what was yeah. the programming? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I wanted to bring my artists there, yep. you yep. know, and shine right. light on them and just make it more international. That's but then great. again, things were changing even at that time Yeah, to the point with technology mm -hmm. where I was selling a lot of work to people in the United States from Berlin. So <laughs> then again, it's, you know, and there were some great local people, yeah. but the movement was very new to them. So it would have taken a lot more time. And there were, you know, there are other galleries that had started to open there too, but it was a slow process and just really didn't make sense long-term financially, but it was a great experience. The fact that you sustained that for three years, not speaking the language. <laughs> that's Yeah. I mean, luckily most Germans speak very good English because it's sort of the language of commerce, you know? Right, but right. Yeah, it, sure. At times I've felt very, you know, like maybe... I should learn. <laughs> where Where did you, are you from LA originally? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Washington state. So oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And then I came here for college. I went to school at the Claremont colleges and stayed. Yeah. Washington state. That's beautiful country up there. It's beautiful. I mean, it was on the Eastern side. I mean, it side. rains a lot, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was more on the Eastern side, which is drier, but. It is beautiful. Seattle's gorgeous. It's a nice place to grow up. Nice place to grow up. Yeah, that's what I say about the Midwest. Nice place to grow up. Glad I'm not there anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you want you want to leave at some point and <laughs> try some new adventures. So I want to make sure that we celebrate your anniversary and talk about the upcoming show. You have, starting August 6th, uh, running through August 27th, you have your 25th anniversary exhibition and the roster of artists is obviously world-class, par none. And so let's talk about the show and the exhibition 
that people should come out for. This must have been one of the hardest shows for you, period, to program. I mean, where do you, I mean, like, because you don't want to leave anybody out, you know, yet, you know, you know, all of that stuff, right? And yet the roster, I mean, you've got, I mean, how many artists right now? I'm looking at this list. I'm trying to count them, but what is it, like 25, 30 artists here? Yeah, I think it's like 33 or 34 now. Yeah, there are a lot. And it is true. I mean, I 25 years is a really long time. So I picked artists that I have, you know, historically a great relationship with still. And I feel like I do have a good relationship with all the artists that I've worked with. It also is just juggling their time consideration. And there are some artists, of course, that are with other galleries. So being very mindful of that. And it really... It was really fun because there are a few artists that I'm introducing that we haven't shown yet, but we're showing next year or the following year, you know? So I think it was a combination of all of those things, which is just logistics. I mean, no one was left out, you know, for any other reason that I knew that they wouldn't be able to have work in the show, sure, was, sure. you know, too right. short. And then just the amount of space. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's that's you know because the constraints are real, right? Yeah. And so how do you how do you maximize right within those constraints? But this has got to be. I mean, it's a who's who of of lowbrow and pop surrealism, you know. And and so is it sort of one piece per artist? I mean, how did you, given the constraints? I mean, how did you approach? Did you ask specific artists for specific pieces? I mean, how did you actually go approach the curation? Well, it was speaking to the artists first and then just seeing if they were available or, you know, what they would want to create. And we did start with one piece per artist. In some cases, artists wanted to do two or a little series, but everybody was respectful pretty much of space. And in some ways, I'm just waiting to see what they bring. <laughs> so it's kind of fun. Right. It's I wasn't going to direct. There's nothing thematic. There's it's like yeah. you know, show what you want. It's a celebration. Think, That's completely. right. Completely, and be, you know, and I think because people are excited and they they're contemporaries of theirs, and a lot of these artists are friends. Right. It's just really nice. So they'll want to put in what they want to represent them. I think you may need to bring in security again for the show. I think people may be <laughs> scaling the fence in the back again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, that would be fun. It's funny though, because you know, a lot of artists that I work with, they're not based in Los Angeles. So it's a little bit, you know, sad that not everybody can come in. And then it's also possibly a little bit sad that, you know, we're going to this other COVID surge, such as our last three years. So we'll see. I mean, it will be a celebration. We're going to be doing videos as well. So people who can't make it can experience it online. And it'll be really fun. I'm very excited. You know, not to not to, you know, go back to something that we'd prefer to forget. But, you know, COVID was a reckoning for all of us worldwide on many levels. And in, obviously, you know, personally, and then in terms of business, it was a, a reckoning for so many businesses, sadly. And of course, the gallery scene was decimated in many ways, you know, and I'm sure you felt that pressure as much as anybody. But I mean, how did you navigate that and, and and how were you able to to sort of tread water and get through it because I'm guessing that may have been one of the greatest tests of your 25 year history I definitely think it was I think that so much you know kind of culminated at that time just you know when I think of covid I also think of all the other you know social anxiety that was happening during the time as well 
And it, it was a big deal, like all of it was. So when COVID hit, I had just opened an important show for this 87-year-old photographer, Henri Domon, who's a Holocaust survivor and shot for Life magazine for 20 years. So incredible work, you know, important historical work. There's a documentary made on his life called, you know, Looking Up. So we'd opened this very important exhibition, amazing opening, just wonderful. And I think the lockdown happened like a week later. So it's like, oh, <laughs> that it's like, okay, we move on. We keep going. We set up a system to do by appointment. We really dig into our website. We really dig into other platforms, you know, and the anxiety was real, like not only for me, but for my artists. But I think because I'm so protective of the artists that I work with, I just went full bore, like we're doing this. It doesn't matter. We can do this. So I don't, you know, the only delays we made in our schedule were ones that we had to make because of like framing or supply chain issues. So we just kind of maneuvered as well as we could. When artists would call and talk to me, you know, a lot of artists are like, should I postpone my show? Is anything going to sell? You know, just feeling anxious, of course, it would be like, well, when is this going to stop? We don't know. We have to be strong. We have to move forward, hope for the best and work really hard and just know we're going to work really hard. And I think the surprise was, and not just for me, but for a lot of galleries, I think, is that people still bought art because they were at home. They weren't spending money in restaurants. They weren't spending money traveling. And they were looking at their homes as a really important sanctuary. So people started to garden more. They started to do home improvements, you know, that could... And I think some people wanted things that brought them joy. And so they, they bought art or things that they connected to that represented something to them. And I'm really grateful, you know, because we did okay. And it wasn't easy because people, you know, had to set up an appointment to come see the gallery. And, you know, there are all these restrictions that might make people not want to even get in their car. But a lot of people did and online people engaged. So... I thought it was interesting too, because, you know, people don't call the gallery very often anymore. And people started calling <laughs> and asking <laughs> questions and engaging in conversation. I'm like, this is pretty great. Well, you're looking know? for that connection. I love yeah, it. Yeah, People wanted to converse and like, we did FaceTime presentations of work in the gallery, you know, that were more personable and like more private appointments that way. So sort of the connection became more important and like hearing someone's on the voice, their voice on the phone. And, you know, just knowing there was really a person physically there that was handling things was good. All of my artistic yeah, were great. Yeah. That's a, such a testament to you, to the gallery, to your collectors, to the artists. And, you know, and oh, by the way, as I'm thinking about this, I mean, you guys are damn near bulletproof because Co there was COVID, but let's not forget the 08 crash. You sur you survived the 08 crash as well, which was uh, traumatic for so many galleries. Yeah. You know, so whatever you're doing over there, Mary Karnowski, keep doing it <laughs> because Thank it is you. working. And I am so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today and talk about your 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 journey, your story, the, your love for your artists, your love for the work that you do to support them and advocate for them. You know, I hope 
It's a hope. But I, I would love to think that every one of your artists is going to hear our conversation. So imagining that they might, you know, I want to I want to part with this. I, I'd love for you to have the microphone and, and just, you know, speak what's on your mind and heart. What, what would you like to say to your artists listening right now? I would like to thank them for what they've given me. You know, so often people talk about what they do for other people, you know, what what a gallerist does for the artist. And I really have to say that my artists have really inspired me and encouraged me in ways to want to do better, you know, to work harder, to create a legacy that is impactful for the art community, you know, and to know that I really, really, really genuinely love each and every artist's work that I've that I've ever worked with, that that's where it started, you know, with my passion for their work. And all of them are great. So, you know, from day one to day now. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that speaks volumes about who you are as a person. The fact that you thank them for, for giving to you over the years, as I know that they feel the same way about you and what you've given to them. And that's 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 a beautiful sentiment to sort of sign off on. And But before we go, I definitely want to make sure we reiterate about the uh, 25th anniversary exhibition coming up August 6th through August 27th here in Los Angeles at 633 North La Brea Avenue in the City of Angels. Uh, of course, the website to get the information would be kpprojectsgallery.net. And is there anything else? Am I forgetting uh, that we should say as we sign off here? But we, we want to make sure that people know they have all the, the critical info, the critical stats, if you will. Yes. And everyone is invited to come to the opening. I would just ask that you'd RSVP so we can, you know, take into account, you know, drinks and, and nibbles, things of that nature. And the way to do that is to just send an email to RSVP at kpprojects.net. Well, that's fantastic. And I would do that, Mary, but actually I'm going to scale the fence in the back. I'm just <laughs> going to, I'm going <laughs> to, for old time's sake. <laughs> just why not, right? Yeah. I mean, you've inspired me. Call it performance art. I don't know. Perfect. Well, Mary Karnaski, you are a joy. Thank you so much. And yeah, I'll tell you what, I would love, yeah, I know how busy you are, but someday if you could come back and uh, talk with, with me again, because this has been a real joy. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you, Mary. We'll talk soon. Soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.